Hey everyone, Justin here from Eerie Earfuls. We're bringing this old podcast back, and to prepare for the big return, we're re-releasing our old episodes every two weeks until we catch up. These were originally recorded in 2018, so the references are going to be a little out of date. Also, the earlier episodes have some occasional sound or editing issues as we figured out our process, which I've tried to fix or mitigate if possible. Personally, I still think they sound pretty good, but we definitely got better as we went along. I hope you enjoy these older episodes and expect us to start dropping new ones sometime in July or August. Stay scared, everyone. Hey everyone, and welcome to Eerie Earfuls, where nobody trusts anybody anymore, and we're all very tired. Every two weeks, we choose a horror movie double feature to compare and contrast for your entertainment. Fair warning, there will be spoilers. I'm Justin. And I'm Brandon. (laughs) (laughs) Let's jump in today's double feature. The person that picks the double feature rotates from episode to episode. This week was my pick, and I chose Carrie and Frankenstein. Let's pop in the synopsis tape. Carrie is a 1976 film directed by Brian De Palma and written by Lawrence D. Cohen. Carrie White experiences her first period as she showers after gym class. She panics, believing she's dying, and desperately pleads for help. The other girls respond to this by pelting her with tampons, laughing, and chanting, Plug it up! Plug it up! Gym teacher, Miss Collins, breaks up the commotion and tries to calm Carrie, who, in her panic, makes a light shatter overhead before Miss Collins manages to console her and explain what is happening. In the principal's office, Carrie uses telekinesis to smash his ashtray after he continually calls her by the wrong name. Carrie's classmate, Sue, feels guilty for participating in the bullying, so she asks her handsome and popular boyfriend, Tommy, to invite Carrie to the upcoming prom in her place. Carrie is reluctant, but Miss Collins convinces her to accept Tommy's invitation. One of Carrie's bullies, Chris, is upset about being suspended and banned from prom, and swears vengeance. She recruits her delinquent boyfriend, Billy, to play a prank on Carrie. They slaughter pigs from a nearby farm and place a bucket of their blood above the stage at the school's gymnasium, where Chris plans to dump it on Carrie at the prom. Chris's friends rig the election, and Carrie is crowned prom queen. Once on stage, Chris dumps the pig's blood on Carrie and escapes through a back door. The blood-soaked Carrie hallucinates that everyone is laughing at her and unleashes telekinetic fury upon the crowd. She locks the doors, sealing everyone inside, and sets fire to the gym. At home, Carrie's mother pretends to comfort her before stabbing her in the back. Defending herself, Carrie telekinetically stabs her mother with kitchen utensils before losing control of her powers entirely and causing the house to crumble and burn down with Carrie and her mother still inside. The film ends with Sue, the sole survivor from the prom massacre, haunted by reoccurring nightmares of Carrie rising from the grave and attacking her. Frankenstein is a 1931 film directed by James Whale and written by Francis Edward Farrago and Garrett Ford. In a European village, Henry Frankenstein and his hunchbacked assistant Fritz piece together a human body from parts collected from the dead in hopes of bringing the new body to life. He sends Fritz to a local medical school to collect a brain for the creature. Fritz accidentally drops the normal brain, damaging it, and decides to take the brain of a criminal. Henry's fiancée Elizabeth is worried about his recent behavior. He's become secluded, refusing to see anyone, and only ever talking about his work. She, their mutual friend Victor, and Henry's former teacher Dr. Waldman go to confront Harry. To prove his sanity, he performs his final experiment, bringing the creature to life. 
The creature, despite its grotesque form, appears to be a simple, innocent creation. However, when Fritz enters with a flaming torch, it frightens the creature, and its fright is mistaken as an attempt to attack them. They chain the creature in the dungeon where Fritz antagonizes it. Eventually, the creature kills Fritz, and Henry and Waldman inject it with a sedative. While Henry prepares for his wedding, Waldman prepares to dissect the creature. However, it awakens, kills him, and begins wandering the land. It accidentally murders a child trying to play with her after she showed it kindness. After realizing its mistake, the creature flees in panic. The father of the girl carries her body into town, and the village forms a mob to bring the creature to justice. During the search, Henry becomes separated from the group and is discovered by the creature who attacks him. The creature knocks Henry unconscious and carries him off. The mob follows, cornering the creature in an old windmill. It hurls Henry to the ground while the mob sets fire to the mill. It burns to the ground with the creature still inside. The film ends at Castle Frankenstein, where Henry's father, Baron Frankenstein, celebrates the wedding of his recovering son with a toast to a future grandchild. So, Justin, I figured we'd start by you explaining why you picked these two movies. So I chose these two movies because I liked the theme of misunderstood monsters. Both Frankenstein and Carrie are presented like monster movies. Frankenstein is a very prototypical monster movie. It's sort of the template for monster movies, almost. And Carrie, in ways, almost seems to follow that formula. Hers is a little more sympathetic, but they both have a, have a monster movie vibe to them. Plus, in Frankenstein's marketing, Frankenstein is very deliberately marketed as a monster. It explicitly calls him a monster, and the, it, it's actually misleading, deliberately misrepresenting things that happen in the movies. So in the, in the re-release trailer, uh, which is, a, as far as I know, it's the only theatrical trailer that I've ever seen, it misrepresents things that Frankenstein does. At one point, it claims that he preys on children, which is not something that he does in the movie. It's, it's an accident. He does kill a child, but it's by accident. It's a misunderstanding on his part. When this dead hand moves, the monster created by a man they called Mad is turned loose to strike terror into the hearts of men, to shock women into uncontrolled hysteria, to prey upon the innocence of children. This is the story you've heard about, talked about, the spine-tingling, blood-chilling story that stuns your emotions. Frankenstein! Carrie's is a little more sympathetic, it's a little less overt, but it still presents her as a monster. Uh, twice in the theatrical trailer, it uses that scary close-up shot of her with the blood-soaked eye where she's given the, like, death stare to someone. Every time she uses telekinetic powers, there's that shrill violin shriek. It's sort of like the, from the score of Psycho. It sounds like someone is shrieking every time she does something bad. So it, it, it's intentionally portraying her acts of supernatural ability, at least, as monstrous. It's the night of the senior prom. Everybody is there. Even Carrie White. The girl no one likes, and everyone makes fun of. The girl who lives in that creepy house with her crazy mother. But tonight, no one will laugh at Carrie. For Carrie, it will be a dream come true. For everyone else, it will be a nightmare. Carrie. They're also, weirdly, both about someone who creates life and then regrets and fears their creation. Both creators feel like they've sinned against God for having created this being. Henry Frankenstein believes his creature is a violent monster, and he tries to abandon the experiment and leaves the creature to essentially be murdered. He leaves it to one of his teachers to be dissected and, and killed. His fears are only reinforced later when the creature accidentally murders that child that I mentioned earlier. Margaret, Carrie's mom, similarly, she believes that sex is evil, she believes it's sinful, 
and therefore her sexual intercourse that she had to go through to create Carrie and resulting in that pregnancy, she believes that the pregnancy is almost punishment from God. She also thinks that Carrie is a witch and that the devil has possessed her and is acting through her and that's how she's able to do these supernatural things. Or at least that's what she says. I kind of have more on that later. But so it's interesting that there's this weird parallel between Frankenstein creating something, creating a life, and then ultimately rejecting it because he doesn't understand it and is fearful of it and Margaret doing the exact same thing. Yeah, I also thought that both of the movies paired well on that level. As you said, both have sympathetic leads that are viewed as monsters, but are actually, like, misunderstood. And they both have a lot of religious themes and symbolism. And the big main tie between the two is, like you said, the character of Mrs. White and Henry Frankenstein. Because not only are they, like, creating things and then rejecting the things that they create, but they're also seeking the power of God. So Henry is trying to utilize whatever the power of God is that creates life. And so he's constantly searching for this hidden secret that will allow him to create new life, basically. Because instead of referring to his creation as a reanimated corpse, it's really a brand new body that has never lived and he brings it to life. And uh, Mrs. White, on the other hand, is also seeking the power of God, but it's more in a healing aspect because she thinks that because she spared her child, basically, yeah, the more that she prays and the more that she devotes herself to God and the more Carrie does that, the more that Carrie's telekinesis won't manifest. And at one point, she even believes that if the if she did that enough, then Carrie would never have a period because that was like the ultimate loosing of sin upon women. And she even says like, first comes the blood, then comes the sin. But they also use their religious themes differently. Carrie, for instance, is, I think, a very 70s movie because it's, it's very much capitalizing on feminism and women harnessing their inner power in order to take down a traditionally patriarchal society. I think that reads very well into the plot structure of Carrie. But also, it's seeking a separation of these ideas, specifically Christian ideas, that so many things that women do are sinful, and it's because of those things that mankind suffers. So it's very interesting rejection of all of those concepts, literally, because as soon as she embraces not only her womanhood but her telekinetic powers, she is just able to break down all of the barriers, basically. She's contradicting her mother, and obviously she gets revenge on her classmates, although she is provoked. She, she really is sort of finally entering, it's sort of a latent, like latent teenagerhood, because she she's so meek and quiet at the beginning of the movie. And then once she finally has her period, and once she starts exhibiting telekinetic powers, then suddenly she becomes more bold. There's hesitation there, but like at the beginning of the movie, or early in the movie, I should say, whenever the teacher is reading Tommy Ross's poem, He's asking the class for feedback, and um, everyone's really quiet, no one really wants to say anything, and then Carrie volunteers, it's beautiful, and then the teacher mocks her for it, for some weird reason. I think it's because the, uh, the implication was that the poem was plagiarized, and so the teacher was reading it in like a mocking fashion, you know, like obviously this was not your poem and you plagiarized it. Oh. But Carrie was naive enough to think it was his poem, and in fact thought it was beautiful, which of course it's beautiful, it's probably written by some classic author, I think that was the point <laughs> gotcha. of that scene. Well, it was really weird because it, it was like he was taking it out on her. And I think Tommy noticed that too. Like he may have been making fun of Tommy initially for plagiarizing, 
but he starts mocking her and this really mean-spirited is beautiful and she <laughs> like he even tommy says you suck mm-hmm. like that's a big thing as someone who was extremely shy in school and didn't say things because i was kind of afraid of the teacher it, it's a really big deal to build up enough courage to actually throw something out and and make a comment and for him to yeah. shit all over her like that was was really like a tear down but like she doesn't go back into her shell. She continues to... She defies her mom. She argues with her mom to go to the dance. She wears a very nice dress that's not, like, super modest. Like, coming from the environment mm-hmm. she came from, you would expect her to choose something super modest that still still maybe looked nice, but was more, like, covered. But she also wasn't wearing, like, a, a super revealing dress either. She's just wearing, like, a normal dress. But I was impressed with the, the costuming there. And uh, she embraces this new world very quickly, M- maybe too quickly, sadly, since everything goes to <laughs> shit after that. But <laughs> yeah, and I think that Carrie is very like liberal, like it has these religious themes, but it's also a constant like rejecting of them. They're simplistic and archaic, and they don't really have a place in like normal society anymore. At least that was the connotation that I got from the film. Is that the right word? Mm-hmm. That was like what I gleaned from it. Anyway, um, Frankenstein, on the other hand, um, I think you could read the movie as like a direct allegory. So you've got Henry Frankenstein. He's God. And he's basically making a human just because, you know, (laughs) it's like not super clear. Well, it is a little clear in Genesis. Like he's making humans to provide dominion over like the animals and the land and stuff like that. But his creation in in general is just sort of like, eh, why not? Yeah, exactly. But everything else was just kind of, he's a very peaceful creation. It's just kind of like, oh, I'd like these things to exist, and then they do. So you've got that, and then you've got the character of Fritz, who could be mirrored with the character of the serpent in Genesis. Not directly, because the serpent in Genesis is very, like, tricks Adam and Eve into the fall of mankind by eating the forbidden fruit, and Fritz is much more confrontational and actually, like, tortures the monster into murdering Fritz. But they both are acting as the agent that induces the fall of man. And then you've got the monster itself, which represents mankind or Adam and starts off very innocent and, you know, basically childlike because he doesn't know anything, but he's tortured into doing these acts, basically. And also the character of Fritz is responsible for him having a abnormal brain, I guess you'd call it. Mm -hmm. Just a side note, it's really interesting the way that Fritz has sort of been rewritten with the character of Igor. (laughs) <laughs> who I think is in Son of Frankenstein, right? He doesn't show up until Son? Yeah, one of the... House. Yeah, it's one of the... I think it's Son of Frankenstein. And that one's played by Bela Lugosi, who is actually named Igor in that mm-hmm. that particular movie. But it's weird how Fritz gets overridden by Igor later. I know. And it's weird that Igor is like the more popular assistant of Frankenstein when it's actually been Fritz a lot longer than Igor because in like most of the play adaptations that the 1931 film was based on all included an assistant to Henry and that assistant was named Fritz and he went through different characterizations of being mute and being hunchback and whatever else. So you've got that kind of allegory, and you could actually even extend it further, because after the fall of man, which uh, in Frankenstein would be basically the killing of Fritz, so after that he's basically a fallen creature, and he's constantly trying to like be understood, 
and he's trying to do the right thing and learn things about the world, but he's constantly fucking up, which is a very apt, you know, uh, <laughs> <That's people's. laughs> interpretation of what humans do, because that's what we <laughs> do all the time. But it even extends further, because in Bride of Frankenstein, the creature actually starts learning things, and at one point is, like, almost literally crucified, and, you know, like, put up on a stake, and, uh, you know, tormented by people. So in the second film, it's like the creature turns into a Christ-like figure. Uh, and then he dies. And then even more fascinating, in the third film, or on the third day, if you will, he's resurrected from the dead in Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman. So through three different films, it could be read as a strange uh, allegory for mankind, like the fall of mankind, and then the introduction of Christ as a saving figure once mankind has gained so much knowledge. And then the resurrection of that in the third film. It's kind of a loose allegory, but it could technically be read as an allegory. Uh, one of the other interesting religious aspects of Carrie is that it includes St. Sebastian. Now, in a lot of the synopses and uh, like little interpretations of the film that I read, they referred to the little figurine that's in Carrie's prayer closet. They called it either a crucifix or they called it a Christ-like figure or something. And it's not, it's actually a figure of St. Sebastian, who is really interesting because St. Sebastian is the patron saint of archers, athletes, and holy death, but he's also the protector from plagues. And that's because oh. there's a couple of stories where towns that were being affected by the bubonic plague erected a shrine to St. Sebastian, and then magically people started healing. And so it's very fitting that Carrie's mom would put a figurine of St. Sebastian in her prayer closet because she's tr constantly trying to purge her of sin and of her telekinetic powers. He's also the patron saint of holy death, which Carrie's mom kind of succumbs to at the end of the movie. And as a matter of fact, she's actually murdered in a similar way to St. Sebastian because St. Sebastian was one of the OG victims of firing squad by a whole bunch of arrows being fired into him. And that's kind of what happens to Carrie's mom, too. And in that, she has this weird moment of, like, orgasmic death that could be seen as, like, holy death because she died for her cause. So it's actually funny that you mentioned that because um, I was doing a little bit of reading on St. Sebastian, too. And what I read is that he survived the firing squad where he actually gets shot with arrows. Yes, there's um, actually uh, two conflicting uh, mythologies around that. One is that his martyrdom came from being shot with so many arrows. And that's why a lot of times he's depicted with arrows. And then there are other legends that say he actually was healed and went back to the guy that sentenced him and still tried to convince him of, of converting to Christianity, in which case he was clubbed to death. Yeah, clubbed to death was the one that I read. Mm -hmm. what, what I find interesting about that is this sort of conflation. Like, she almost loves that she's dying. Like, it's yes. almost like she's been proven right in death. Like, her dying, she feels like she's being a martyr. But I, I kind of like that... There's conflicting mythology. Like, I, I sort of like the idea that she she thinks that she's dying and that this is vindication of everything that she's ever said. But unlike St. Sebastian, who was shot with a firing squad and then healed to continue to spread the gospel, she does not. She just <laughs> dies because she's not actually spreading the gospel. She's, her her gospel is is perverse and, and, yeah. and, and twisted. It's very cult-like. So on the topic of Sebastian being like a protector from plagues, mm -hmm. and that's why she is in Carrie's prayer closet, one of the things I loved about the set design of this movie is early in the movie, the first time that we're actually introduced to Margaret, 
she's going over to uh, one of Carrie's classmates, Sue, going over to her mom. She's she's sort of doing the almost like Jehovah's Witness Mormon thing where she goes from door to door. She's not, I don't think she's quite like doing the like, have you heard the good news about Jesus thing? Mm -hmm. But she is going around like collecting for a church or something. I'm not entirely sure. But she goes and she's talking to Sue's mom and there's this wonderful contrast between Margaret who is wearing not just modest clothes, but she's wearing like this very old fashioned dress. It's it, it's <laughs> very dark in color. It's almost like denim. It looks sort of almost like Mennonite in design. She's mm -hmm. wearing like a cloak and <laughs> she's v clearly very old fashioned contrasted against Sue's mom who is wearing a very nice sharp like suit looking thing. It's not, I wouldn't say it's quite a business suit, but it's it's definitely like dressed up and very specifically, and like you mentioned, cause it's the 70s during women's liberation, she's wearing pants contrasted mm -hmm. with this very conservative woman wearing a dress. Mm -hmm. And then later, whenever Carrie comes home, you see their house is so dark. All of the dr shades are drawn, the blinds are down, the windows are closed, there's no natural light coming into the house. Like they are, it's almost like they're being sealed off from the outside world. Any outside influence cannot penetrate in there, except for Carrie's room where she has her window open so that she can look out. <laughs> That's interesting. And also, I mentioned earlier that line, it's a very interesting line, where uh, she, where Carrie's mom says, first comes the blood and then comes the sin. It actually happens, it's an interesting parallel between what happens at the beginning of the movie and what happens at the end of the movie. Because in the beginning of the movie, she has her period, which is the blood, and then she gets freaked out to the point that her telekinesis bursts one of the lights in the shower. And then that could be considered the sin. And then that happens at the very end of the movie because she gets covered in blood and then begins to, like, tear everything down with her telekinesis. Yeah. It's very interesting how the beginning and end of the movie mirror each other. Now that you bring that up, it, it hadn't occurred to me, but I really like how that also scales. So in the beginning of the movie, there's a little bit of blood, and so she has this small telekinetic flare-up where she blows out a light. Mm -hmm. At the end of the movie, there is a ton of blood. She's covered in it, and so her reaction scales while we're on the subject of carrie uh, i want to talk about the beginning a little bit the, there's a lot of debate on the the shower scene because some people feel like it's very exploitative because the it's just lots of girls running around in the shower on display the faculty of horror had a great episode about carrie um, where they were sort of covering specifically menstruation and how it's depicted in horror and they paired Carrie with Ginger Snaps, which is a great episode, and I highly recommend everyone go listen to it. But there's one thing in particular that they said that I'm unsure about. So I'm going to say this stating up front that I'm a dude. <laughs> and therefore, that can affect the way I view things differently. Something may read differently to a woman than it would to a dude, especially because I don't have you know a woman's experience with things. They argued that the, the shower scene is is not sexualized. They were they were refuting this argument. Uh, they said that they had heard that um, the shower scene is sexualized, but they viewed it as more innocent, mm -hmm. almost like mythological, like these these wood nymphs playing in this sort of like idyllic setting. And I could see that for the most part, it, like it's very like the heavy mist. Everything has sort of like a soft focus feel. It's on slow motion. There's these like like almost like pan flutes playing while while this is happening. Except for when it zooms in on Carrie, and when the camera finally frames Carrie and sort of pans in to her, to me, I could see the argument that the rest of the scene isn't sexualized, but Carrie in particular seems to be sexualized. 
I don't know if it's intentional or not, but there's a lot of close-ups of her body. She's very specifically like rubbing her breasts, which I mean, I know that she's showering. You, you have to rub your body when you take a shower, but she's like very specifically rubbing her breasts. There's lots of close-ups of her thigh and, the, uh, and her rubbing her thigh and then a close-up of her with her head back and her eyes closed and her mouth open and this almost sort of like moan. She seems to be relishing the shower, we'll say. Which leads into a great shot of like she's rubbing her thigh and she's rubbing her thigh and she's rubbing the inside of her thigh and then suddenly her hand comes down into the frame again and it's covered in blood and then you see blood running down her thigh. I don't know if Brian De Palma intended it this way and I think it's important to note that the director of this particular film is a guy. And so it almost seemed, and I wouldn't necessarily agree with this, but it almost seemed like it was trying to contrast like this young beauty with the horror then of the period and there's this sort of like societal pall on menstruation and on periods where guys are supposed to be grossed out by them and anytime women bring them up guys are supposed to go ew no don't talk about that guy and that's even sort of carried over a little further after carrie has her freak out and the gym teacher comes in and tries to console her uh when carrie was freaking out she grabbed onto the gym teacher's shorts and left bloodstains on them and whenever the gym teacher is talking about how upset she is, she's shocked that Carrie doesn't know that she's supposed to have her period. And the principal isn't listening to her. He's staring at her shorts and at the bloodstain. And it's a very intentional and specific shot of the bloodstained shorts in the foreground and him very clearly making eye contact with it. You could practically draw a line from his eyes to the bloodstains. Hmm, I had an entirely different reaction to that scene. Um, when it first started, like, you know, the shower sequence, I felt the same way. I was like, I feel like this is just kind of gratuitous, like, ooh, slow motion boobs and people showering. But the more I watched it, the visuals accompanied by the score and then, like, the close-ups of Carrie, it kind of, for me, I thought it was supposed to be very sweet treatment of Carrie, you know? It's like the, the one time that she's able in school to get away from the bullies and she's enjoying that moment and kind of washing away all of the shit that the kids do to her all the time, which is why she would be enjoying the shower. And um, it's just kind of, I don't know, like I, th I felt like the close-up shots, while some of them might have been gratuitous, they also were kind of reflecting her sweetness and innocence and like her budding beauty and stuff like that. And then a really interesting part happens when the period happens, everything goes completely silent. There's no score. There's no like big score cue to symbolize like periods are bad. There's just nothing except for the background shower noise and like the noises of people doing stuff. And I think it's intentional because it's like an innocent discovery of something that she had no, you know, she had no context or knowledge of. And so in that situation would be terrifying, but there's absolutely no score. And that happens exactly the same way at the prom when the blood gets dumped on her. As, as soon as that happens, there is no score. And the only thing that is accompanied is the dripping of the blood from the bucket and from the ceiling and off of Carrie. There's just I the noise that. of the dripping and the bucket clanging back onto the beam that it was hanging from. And it was amazing. Like, I thought both of those sequences were very well done and they mimicked each other very well. And so you have to credit the guy that did the score with enough restraint to have those moments in silence, like those realization moments for Carrie, but also the sound designers to accompany that with just nothing and even and in the second one it goes even further because even when the kids start laughing 
you don't hear them. Like, you don't hear them laughing, you don't hear them taunting, you don't hear Tommy's defensive yells. It's literally just the sound of the dripping blood and the sound of the bucket swinging back and forth. Yeah, I, I think that your read on the shower scene is really interesting. It's, it's something that I hadn't thought about. And I, I can see places where that would, you know, that would be backed up. Like, she is quickly the only one isolated in the frame whenever it's panning through the, the locker room at the beginning. And it's crowded. Girls are everywhere running around talking, chatting, you know, just, you know, being young and goofy. And then the camera pans over and, like, people are steadily out of the frame. And the camera zooms in and everyone else is slowly sort of isolated out. And it's just focusing on Carrie. So that's a really interesting read. Where uh, Carrie has religious elements that it deals with through her mother, Frankenstein is more at times of a contrast between science and religion. Uh, one of the things that Frankenstein focuses on, it's, it's only an implication, but it's there, is um, when Fritz goes to get the brain that the creature, who I am going to call Frankenstein because I don't care about your pedantic uh, No, nonsense. that's the monster. Um, Jeez. It's Frankenstein's monster. Is Henry Frankenstein in Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman? Um, no, I don't think so. Is any of the House of Frankenstein in Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman? I don't think so. Then I think we're going to go with the fact that Frankenstein is, in fact, the name of the monster. <laughs> Bam. You burnt nerds. <laughs> I guess that's true. Anyway, um, so Frankenstein seems to be a sort of a contrast between science and religion. On the one hand, it's like Henry is flying in the face of God by using science to, to bring life to something that didn't exist before, I guess you should say, because he does explicitly say, this body has never lived. In a way, this is honestly kind of a refutation of religion, because he does bring it to life. So this power that's supposed to only belong to God, he, I mean, he did it. He was right. On the other hand, the movie seems to imply that it's an imperfect life, or at least it seems like we're we're supposed to think it's an imperfect life because he he's he's violent and childlike. But the second movie seems to even toss that into the bin because he learns to speak. He becomes sophisticated. I mean, he clearly has emotional problems because his dad was like, "Nah, I'm good," and <laughs> kicked him to the curb. But I want to focus on one particular aspect that the first movie implies heavily on. I would argue that the second movie does a lot to sort of kick a lot of that out. But the first movie implies that he is an inferior creation, partially because Fritz grabbed a criminal brain instead of the supposed normal brain. And this all ties into a type of science called phrenology, which is pseudoscience nonsense used by racists literally to justify slavery. But uh, the origins of it are from the 18th century in Vienna. There was a physician named Franz Joseph Gall who observed that his childhood classmates that excelled at memorizing things tended to have large protruding eyes. And because of that, he suggested that the part of the brain located behind the eyes must be associated with verbal memory, and therefore their <laughs> larger lobes behind their eyes made their eyes protrude forward, and therefore because that lobe was higher developed, they had better memorization. Like I said, it's all hooey and racism. Well, not only racism, but also sexism, because they, they also claimed that women's brains were smaller than men's brains, which was why they shouldn't be allowed to vote and all, you know, have all this other agency, yep. you know. It's also where a lot of our turns of phrase come from, where we describe something as highbrow versus lowbrow, or when it says we're going to a shrink, that mm. was because they were going to supposedly have parts of their brains shrunk, like the <laughs> inferior or lesser parts of their brain that no one wanted associated with. 
And also where we get the idea of getting your head examined whenever you go to a psychiatrist because they were literally examining the shape of your skull because they believed that the shape of your brain matched the shape of your skull. <laughs> In a very few small ways, the dude was kind of sort of right. In that, at the time that he came up with his opinion or with his theory, a lot of physicians still believed that passions, like a different emotional state, still held to like the heart or the liver. And he believed that the brain was sort of the center of all of our thoughts and, and being. And he also sort of correctly guessed that based on comparing animals and their spinal cords with humans, more sophisticated animals had larger, more developed brains, whereas lower animals had smaller brains and they, had, they basically had a spinal cord and then a little tiny brain. He thought that the nervous system was connected with the brain. He, he believed that that was all part of it, whereas a lot of anatomists thought that the, the spinal cord was just sort of the tail of the brain. <laughs> so in those places, he was right. Mostly, it's nonsense. But it's one of those places where, like, a broken clock's right twice a day. And the implication there is that Fritz grabs this abnormal brain. This is the brain of a criminal. Look at these lower brows and how developed they are. He's a low-browed individual. And therefore, he gets this broken, bad brain. When uh, Waldman, Henry's professor... Uh, that's Dr. Waldman, I believe. Waldman, I'm sorry. When Dr. Waldman <laughs> uh, points out that it's an abnormal brain, Henry shrugs it off and says, Well, I mean, it's just a piece of dead tissue after all. So even he tries to sort of refute it. And then I feel like the movie does a good job in the sequel of refuting that because yeah. he is not a criminal in the sequel. He, in Bride of Frankenstein, he's talking, he, he's smoking, he's, he develops friendships, he develops feelings, he's able to express complex thoughts. So clearly, the criminal brain is nonsense hooey, and Henry's supposed slight against God by bringing life to this being, it's not lesser life. He's able to live and function exactly the, the way that everyone else does. He just ain't as pretty as some people. An interesting thing about James Whale is that he was apparently openly gay in the 20s and 30s, which is basically unheard of. <laughs> and whenever I googled James Whale and being gay, Bride of Frankenstein came up, but I was wondering about Frankenstein, because as I was watching it, one of the things I noticed is that there was something weird about Colin Clive's performance. Every time that he is supposed to be with his fiance, he, his attitude toward family was so weird. Um, <laughs> supposedly, he was supposed to be marrying Elizabeth, this person that he loved so much. But one, the character of Frankenstein had secluded himself away from everybody else, living by himself with another dude. Whenever he does go back with Elizabeth and live with her, they, it's almost like their relationship is sexless. There's very little passion or romance. There's no, they don't, I don't remember them sharing really much of like a romantic big Hollywood kiss that you would expect. There's more passion between Victor, Henry's friend, and Elizabeth. And there's even a flirting scene with them very early in the movie that never followed, like they never follow up on it. But there's this scene where Victor comes over and he's talking to Elizabeth and he says that he's going to go off and she says don't go because uh, she's afraid something will happen to him and she cares about him too much should anything happen to him. And like right after that she was like, oh no, don't say things like that. <laughs> oh, she said, I'm far too fond of you. And he says, I wish you were. Which, <laughs> there's, that's a, oh. <laughs> Saucy. Oh, my scads. <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> there's passion there. They're, they clearly have chemistry, and there's almost nothing between Henry and Elizabeth. They, they're just there. And so I googled it, and there apparently were heavy rumors that Colin Clive was bisexual. 
apparently uh, there's a, I was reading a magazine article from the eighties from, I think it was called film and review. And I'll include a link in the, in our notes about that. But um, apparently his family, uh, the rumor, at least in this, in this article, they talk about how his family was not thrilled with him being bisexual. They viewed it as a weakness that was agitated by his marriage to Jean de Casales. I think is how you say her name who was also rumored to have been at least bisexual. Um, apparently she was known for having a lot of female lovers, and it put Colin Clive in kind of an awkward place. Apparently he was really into drinking. <laughs> oh, yeah, he was, yeah, that was part of the reason why he died at 37, was because he had a bad alcohol problem. Yeah, I couldn't confirm this entirely, but from what I've read, Colin Clive's life as being bisexual seemed to be more closeted, and it seemed to be more of a struggle with him, and he hung out with James Whale a lot, actually, at a lot of yeah. all-male parties, mm-hmm. and it seemed to be like a struggle for him, whereas James Whale was openly gay. He had a boyfriend that he lived with, I think, like, 27 years together before he wound up meeting another guy on the set of a different movie, and mm. uh, he was like, hey, I want this guy to move in with me, and his boyfriend was like, no? <laughs> <laughs> and his boyfriend left although they stayed friends even after they broke up mm. and sadly james whale wound up committing suicide but not out of like being closeted or or for any troubles of of having been gay he just got really sick and he was miserable and eventually he decided he didn't want to live being so sick anymore and so he committed suicide he drowned himself in his pool but uh, i just found it interesting that there wasn't a lot of gay reading of frankenstein and i it seems more like the creature itself is sort of the gay allegory that people read from in Bride of Frankenstein. But for me, it was Henry. Yeah. Because Henry has very little relationship with his wife. He spends most of his time finding excuses to get away from her or to delay their marriage. And he spends most of his time living with another guy in a like in a lab in the middle of nowhere and building himself a tall, muscular man. Yeah. It was not a far stretch to take that plot and make Rocky <laughs> Horror Picture Show, is what I'm saying. <laughs> Uh, not to mention, uh, I liked how you mentioned chemistry earlier, because all of the scenes between Henry and his wife, they're just kind of standard readings. I wouldn't say they're completely wooden, but they're just very standard readings of, you know, what actors might do in those situations. But that scene where Colin Clive and Edward Van Sloan, who plays Dr. Waldman, uh, the chemistry between the two in that scene is fascinating, and the way Colin Clive depicts his character in that scene, like utterly fascinated with their conversation is was very interesting and uh not to mention there's a line in there where he was like didn't you ever want to do something that was different or something and like just the way he it was like his body position and the way he delivered the line i was like what's going on there i, w- I don't know if electric is quite the right word but it feel he feels more engaged in yeah, that scene definitely. than in anything else which I think translates to the audience, because in a lot of the scenes between him and Elizabeth, I'm like, yeah, whatever, plot, 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 let's go. But in that scene, you're just kind of riveted by their conversation, just because the way the two actors are playing off of each other. And they sort of play up that there's issues with the, with the marriage. It's never addressed between Henry and Elizabeth, but his Henry's dad, Baron Frankenstein, is, is convinced that the reason Henry is living somewhere is like hiding off somewhere else. He's not convinced that there's any actual scientific merit to anything Henry is doing. He just thinks that he's shacking up with another woman. But Elizabeth <laughs> yeah. does say at one point, and it's meant to be an implication that like she has this woman's intuition that something dangerous is going to happen, but the phrasing is very specific. It's just before Frankenstein shows up and attacks her. She says, I felt like this all day. Something is coming between us. 
She doesn't say that she's worried something will happen to Henry. She says specifically she doesn't want to lose him. Unless you accept that they are supposed to be together because they, he is the guy and she is the girl and that's how these movies go. They don't have any chemistry. They don't seem <laughs> particularly into each other. It's just like, no. oh, the plot says we're getting married, so yes, we are. <laughs> I thought that the two films paired together well on another level due to their cinematography because you have all these moments in Carrie where things are, you know deliberately shot in a way to add either frenzy or sympathy or something like that you know like the very beginning shots are i think they're filmed in a way to make the character of carrie sympathetic and then you've got other scenes that are shot in a way to give her perspective like when they're at the dance and she's dancing you've got that slow revolving shot where it's just constantly like through their whole conversation revolving around carrie and tommy and it gets faster and faster and faster until finally, you know, she wins the prom queen thing. That's her big moment and it's out of control. And then it becomes soft and all dreamlike again. And then the fantastic editing that's done during the telekinetic attacks where she has these like very sharp, like almost reptilian like movements that she does mm-hmm. are accompanied by these lighting changes. And then these split screen effects where you're seeing her doing those things. And then the effects that are happening on people, the cinematography is used in a way to add atmosphere and also sympathy to the character in Frankenstein too, or add at least uh, different levels to the character because Number one, the set, the way it's designed and how everything is very influenced by like the cabinet of Dr. Caligari, where everything is very German expressionist. So it's Mm -hmm. very influenced by that super dark shadows and bright slashes of light and weird angles. Yeah, weird angles and and curves. And and yeah, it's like a diluted form of the cabinet of Dr. Caligari, because if you've ever watched that, it's extreme expressionism. But also, like, the the very first time they show the monster, that whole scene between Colin Clive and Edward Van Sloan, the, the tension is building between their conversation, and that ultimately culminates in the monster being revealed for the first time, because it's the first time the audience ever actually sees him. And the way it's shot is interesting, because it's like this big tracking shot from them turning off the lights all the way to opening the front door, and then a slightly closer shot of the door opening and then a slightly closer shot of the monster walking in through the doorway backwards, and then he turns around, and then there's, like, two really quick zoom-ins of his face so the audience can, like, I guess, grasp the horror of his face or something. But it's also kind of makes the monster unassuming. So in Carrie, you've got, you know, these shots that are directly, like, portraying the character as either innocent or frightening. And Mm -hmm. I think in Frankenstein, it's supposed to make him frightening but to me the way that reveal was done it's like a morbid fascination but he's also very unassuming because he's not like bursting in and like screaming he's just stoically standing there and he's got super heavy eyelids and he's not doing anything i would agree he he comes in and he's he's it's a very relaxed entrance like he doesn't you're right he doesn't like kick in a door and start screaming or anything when he comes in one he walks in backwards which is really silly well, it is, but around. when you think about it, it kind of makes sense because James Whale is constantly trying to increase the tension of the monster's reveal because up until that point, even with like press stills and stuff, no one had seen what the monster looked like in full makeup except for a couple of test shots that Bela Lugosi did and they were hilarious. So it was really the first time that 
anybody had seen him like that. So it was a great way of constantly building up that tension. I feel like the shot when they, they do those two quick smash cuts into the monster's face, those are, are pretty similar in structure to those quick smash cuts of Carrie whenever she like looks over her shoulder and she's got the... she's Sissy Spacek has these piercing blue eyes. Yeah. They are intense. She looks terrifying. And I feel like it's, it's of a similar effect where it's supposed to be like, smash cut, here's a scary image. But... Yeah. Besides the scene wherever he accidentally drowns that child, where he's uh, like very childlike and laughing and stuff, whenever they open the uh, panels on the ceiling for the first time and he gets to see sunlight, to me that's not a scary moment. That's, that's oh no, yeah. a very like innocent. Like he's he's trying to grab the thing in the sky. Like yep. he sees it and he's like reaching for it, and it it it's this very childlike innocent moment mm-hmm. that. And then he sits, and he sits so casually that his movements aren't jarring, they're not fast, they're not, like, he, he doesn't move violently or quickly, he's just sort of slumping along, walking yep. really slowly. The only the first time he reacts quickly is the fire that Fritz brings into the room. Yeah, not to mention, you know, up until that point, the monster really hadn't been exposed to any light. So that big, no light you know, at all. They specifically opening. said they'd kept them in darkness. Yeah. So that big skylight opening was probably like, what the fuck is that light? And also giant fireball in the sky. There's an interesting thing with outfits, with Tommy's outfit. When they first introduce him, he's like running on the track. And when he's first shown, everyone else in the gym class that he's in, is they're wearing those yellow shirts, black shorts. And he is wearing a black shirt and black shorts. He, like, visually stands out from everybody else. It's also interesting, because if I remember correctly, most of his classmates have, like, dark hair, like, black or brown hair. And he's got this, like, halo of blonde (laughs) hair. When you were talking about the shot where they're spinning, where he's at the prom with Carrie and they're dancing, I loved that shot. Mm -hmm. And I, I loved how, like, fast it started spinning faster and faster. And I think, to me, the way the scene read is, Tommy is a nice guy. He was a little reluctant about taking Carrie to prom because it's weird. What Sue asked him to do is really weird. Yeah. But he eventually goes along because, one, he wants to make his girlfriend happy, and I think he starts to feel for Carrie. Like, you can tell that there's sympathy for her from him early on when the teacher makes fun of her, and he says, you suck. Like, he he doesn't (laughs) like that the teacher's making fun of her. So he takes her to prom, and I, I like that he's not just there out of obligation. Like, he really tries to make her have a happy time. He sells the asking her out. Yeah. He genuinely is like, yeah, I want, I, want, I want you to take me out. Come on. Like, let's go out. Let's go to prom. It's fine. When he takes her to prom, he doesn't want to push too far or, like, make her uncomfortable, but he does try to nudge her into breaking out of her shell. She doesn't want to go dancing, so eventually he's like, let's go dance. Come on. It'll be fine. And he, like, he takes her out there, and he's encouraging her. And he's complimenting her. And there's even this this sweet little moment where I kind of get the feeling that he maybe started to have feelings for her. There's this moment where they're dancing and he leans in and tries to like peck her on the nose and she flinches and he he backs off and he's like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, it's fine, it's cool. And she starts apologizing and she like buries her face in his shoulder and she's nearly in tears over, she says something like, I can't do anything right, even that or something to that effect. And then she kisses him and... That seems to be the moment when the camera starts spinning faster and faster. Like they were walking mm-hmm. in a circle and they were like dancing in a circle, but it's in that scene when they kiss that the camera starts to spin even faster. And to me, it feels like maybe he's genuinely smitten, but especially it feels like this situation is out of his control. Like it was such a simple setup. Take this girl to the dance. 
but she clearly feels stuff for him. Mm. He might feel stuff for her, and that you can feel the situation starting to spin out of control like the shot does. So one thing I noticed about Frankenstein, speaking of, of interesting shots, is in the same way that they sort of compare and contrast Sue's mom with Carrie's mom, there's a similar dichotomy going on in Frankenstein, because you were talking about how James Whale took a lot of influence from German Expressionism, especially like the cabinet of Dr. Caligari and things like that. The sets, whenever Henry is working on his science, are always very German Expressionist. Like, at the beginning, whenever he's with Fritz in the graveyard and they're going to steal that body, the graveyard isn't laid out like a normal graveyard. <laughs> All the grave there's graves that are, like, off-kilter. Mm. Everything is very dramatic. They don't just, like, bury that tomb. They, like, build this giant mound over it. Yeah, there's even a Grim Reaper, like, scarecrow. Skeleton, <laughs> yeah. It's all very dramatic. And then in his lab, everything is like awkward angles. The stairs are really severe and strange. Everything is very light and dark, contrasted, tall shadows. Contrast that with his house. Whenever he goes to either Baron Frankenstein's house or when he's getting ready for his wedding with Elizabeth, the sets are all really normal. The lighting is normal. It's a very traditional design set. Yeah, the last thing that I wanted to mention as an element that works between the two movies is their music aspects. The technique used behind the music in both films is vastly different. The composer of the music for Carrie is actually Pino Donaggio. He was second choice because Brian De Palma really wanted Bernard Herrmann to do the score of Carrie. But unfortunately, while Bernard Herrmann was scoring Taxi Driver, like literally on the last day of recording the score for Taxi Driver, he died. And you can tell he was very influenced by Bernard Herrmann and that generation of composers. Specifically Bernard Herrmann, because every time that Carrie does something that's lashing out with telekinetic powers, there's that sharp, very piercing violin screech, which is similar to in Psycho during the shower murder scene and also the scene where that guy gets stabbed and he falls down the stairs. And they kind of, you know, he kind of wanted to do an homage to that. But other than that, what's really interesting about him is the music, you would think, because it was marketed as a horror movie, that the composer would be capitalizing on the horrific aspects of the story the entire time. And in actuality, Mr. Donaggio does not do that. He is always writing music and scoring the film in the point of view of Carrie. And it's the combination of his music, especially a big element of his music, and the way the shots are framed that makes Carrie a sympathetic character. In the opening scene, that's when you're introduced to Carrie's theme, which I believe is performed by, like, flute and uh, some guitar accompaniment. You know, it kind of reflects Carrie herself because she is also very beautiful and also very innocent and it brings that childlike quality to that. In that regard, I feel like the implementation of the score in Carrie is very well executed. 
In contrast, if you've watched the movie Frankenstein, you will notice, except for music that occurs within the diegesis of the film, there's only ever music during the opening title and during the closing title. And it's very interesting. Um, so I'd, to, I'd like to try to give a little background on uh, <laughs> some early films without going too long. So, the music that's featured in the main title of Frankenstein was an original piece written specifically to be the main title to Frankenstein, and it was written by Bernard Kahn, and it was actually his first job ever scoring a film, and it was a little disappointing for him because James Whale wanted the film to be fully scored. Carl Limley Jr., the guy who was actually, like, wanting Universal to explore these horror movies, uh, was also the one that was like, yeah, I don't think we should include score in film because it might be weird, the audience might not engage in the material. So he was fine with it being, like, at the beginning and at the end, but during the middle of the action, he was like, no, let's not do that. It's just gonna make everything cluttered, and he, he didn't think audiences would respond to it very well. So uh, Bernard Kahn was a little disappointed because he thought he was going to get to score the whole film, and in fact only got to score the main title, and I'm not even sure he got to actually see the movie. I think someone explained the premise to him, and he wrote a song. Which is apparent, I think, because the song, the opening title, I love, and it's a song that I've remembered ever since I was a kid. It's just capitalizing on the terror of the monster, basically, like his monstrous qualities and the monstrous qualities of the film. Um, and this, you know, it's immediately sets the tone like this is supposed to be a scary movie. And then that coupled with the opening shots of a funeral and all the expressionistic camera work and setting immediately sets you into, oh, this is a horror movie. We're going to watch a horror movie. So I think... The music is supposed to convey monstrous qualities of the character, but because there's no score that accompanies the whole movie, which I think is a good thing, uh, because if he had been allowed to score the whole movie of Frankenstein, he would have capitalized on the monstrous aspect and would have like put monster music over everything featuring the monster which would have completely undermined Boris Karloff's performance, because really all of the sympathy that you get for the monster comes from Boris Karloff's completely silent performance, and, and that performance accompanied by no score is what really allows the audience to kind of like marinate in the actions going on on screen and being like, oh, this is actually kind of like a childlike sympathetic character. And had score yeah. been added, it, I think it would have just made the movie completely different. And to me, it would have just ruined it because it would have just stomped all over Boris Koloff's performance. You can kind of see that a little bit in the trailer because the way they cut the trailer, they use the, the yes. opening title music to score the scenes as they play mm -hmm. out. And it plays differently. Like whenever he's freaking out about the fire or something, it, it plays differently. When I watched the movie as a kid and the mill was burning down, I felt bad for Frankenstein yeah. because it looked like he was freaking out about all this fire everywhere, which is the thing he'd been afraid of at the beginning of the movie. 
Uh, but in the trailer, it plays it like he's just this out-of-control monster mm-hmm. stomping around. <laughs> exactly. And what's also funny is Frankenstein is the first universal horror movie to feature its own original theme. Because the like the first supernatural horror movie that Universal did was obviously Dracula. And Dracula came out in February of 1931. And Frankenstein came out in November of 1931. And if you remember the opening title sequence to Dracula... That is not an original composition written for Dracula. It is just an arrangement of the theme from Swan Lake. That's what I thought, yeah. And a lot of it had to do with the Great Depression because it was at its peak effectiveness on the population during 1931 and 1932, and that's when the studio was trying to save the most money. So it was kind of unusual for films to have like a full score through the whole movie, and that really changed with the release of King Kong. And that was a big battle, too. Max Steiner, who eventually wrote the score for King Kong, the production company was just going to use stock music. And Max Steiner threw a big fit and actually went to their offices and was like, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't realize you already had just stock music for a giant ape. So I'll just go. It's fine. And then after he did that, they were like, well, wait, maybe we should have our own unique music. And it was such a huge success that Every film should have been scored after that. So if you watch a lot of the later universal horror films like Dracula's Daughter and Frankenstein Meets a Wolfman and The Wolfman and all these other films, I know in particular Dracula's Daughter has like a lot of score. You're like, it's kind of unusual for a film from this long ago to have this much score. But King Kong really changed Carl Limley's mind. All right, I think that about does it for our discussion. Thanks so much for talking with me today. Yeah, thank you. You can follow us on Twitter at eerie underscore earfuls. Email us at eerie.earfuls at gmail.com and visit us on the web at eerieearfuls.wordpress.com. You can subscribe to us on CastBox and iTunes. Give us a review. It helps other people find the show and it lets us know how we're doing. Our theme music is Baba Yaga by Kevin McLeod. And our synopsis music is Anxiety and Night of Chaos, also by Kevin McLeod. You can find more music at Incompetech.com. Thanks for listening, and stay scared, everyone. Alright. God. I wasted like five minutes of audio. Now I'll record it for real. Okay. Hopefully I won't fuck it up, but that won't happen. Nope. All right. Carrie is a 1970s... Oh, goddammit, what now? (laughs) (laughs) What? (laughs) What is it? I just wanted to fuck with you. <laughs> oh, man. Well, you did. <laughs> you were so sure that you were going to mess it up. <laughs> I, thought, I thought, I can help. <laughs> this is why you have so many problems editing episodes together. <laughs>